Well, good afternoon. Um, on behalf of the Graduate Council of the Academic Senate, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you today to the first of two Hitchcock lectures to be given by <coughs> Professor Margaret Burbage. The Hitchcock professorship is one of the earliest and most cherished endowments at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, it was developed from a bequest of property made in 1885 by Dr. Charles M. Hitchcock, San Francisco physician with an extensive interest in education. Uh, the intention of his bequest was to establish a professorship at the University of California for the purpose of giving free lectures on scientific and practical subjects. In 1930, Dr. Hitchcock's daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, contributed additional funds to the memory of her father and mother. She was, during her lifetime, considered to be one of San Francisco's most colorful figures. Also an enthusiastic supporter of education, Mrs. Coit regularly mingled with the intellectual giants of her day, such as Robert Louis Stevenson, poet Joaquin Miller, and Professor Joseph LeConte of the University of California. Her generous bequest greatly expanded her father's original gift, making it possible for the university to liberalize the terms of the professorship and to present a series of Hitchcock professors. The great extent to which this endowment has enabled the university community to become closely acquainted with distinguished scholars from throughout the academic world is demonstrated by the list in your programs of those who have served as Hitchcock lecturers and Hitchcock professors. The university is proud to see the tradition of the Hitchcock professorship so eminently upheld by Professor Burbage. Professor Burbage is considered to be one of the leading observational astronomers and astrophysicists of our time. A native of Great Britain, Burbage has developed, the, or rather devoted, the past six decades to increasing our understanding of the universe, overcoming sexual discrimination in what has traditionally been a male-dominated field. She is ranked among the leaders of her discipline. In collaboration with her husband, Jeffrey Burbage, she has investigated the composition and evolution of stars the nature of quasars, and the properties of galaxies, among other astronomical phenomena. Her earliest research work concerned chemical abundances in stars of various types and culminated in the now classic work, Synthesis of the Elements and Stars, by Burbage, Burbage, Fowler, and Hoyle, B squared FH to her younger colleagues. Since that time, her research has taken around the world, directing numerous observatories and teaching at a variety of prestigious academic institutions. Born in England in 1919, Burbage received her PhD from the University of London, where she subsequently served as acting director of the observatory. She has held appointments at the Yerkes Observatory, the University of Chicago, the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, England, and the California Institute of Technology. She has been professor of astronomy since 1964 and is currently University Professor Emeritus in the Department of Physics and the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences at the University of California of San Diego. In her lecture today, entitled Stars, Chemistry, and Cosmology, Professor Burbage will discuss some of the most perplexing and philosophical enigmas of astronomical science that she herself has contemplated since the late 1950s. And without further delay, I am pleased to present to you Professor E. Margaret Burbage.
Jack, very much for those kind words. Um, let me just check. Can you hear me in the back? This, this microphone's working all right. Okay. Now, this lecture that I'm going to give is, however inadequate, it's some kind of a memorial to Sir Fred Hoyle. Longtime friend of my husband, uh, Jeffrey Burbage, and, and myself. Fred Hoyle, who died at age 86 on August the 20th of this year, was the true founder of the theory of nucleosynthesis, or that is the building up of the, of the elements, <coughs> of the, all the chemical elements building up in stars. And some aspects of this are what I'm going to talk about today. So, uh, there is Fred. That is taken in the grounds of the institute that he founded in the, at the University of Cambridge in England. The institute, when he founded it, it was called the Institute of, of um, Theoretical Astronomy, and it later became just called the Institute of Astronomy. Uh, but there is, uh, there is Fred. Well, um, since I want to talk uh, in, in a way that is, is a kind of a memorial for Fred, uh, let, me, let me go back 55 years uh, to the year of 1948 and tell you about my first experience of Fred Hoyle. I want to mention here that Fred Hoyle was a, was a former uh, uh, lecturer here. In, um, he, he, gave, uh, he gave a Hitchcock lecture entitled The Emergence of Life and Intelligence. Yeah, and that was in 1974 that he did that. So I think it's very appropriate that I've shown you his, his, his picture here. And that what I'll be talking about uh, this afternoon is, is uh, basically a work that he is the leader, was the leader of. Well, in 1948, I was a postdoc at the University of London Observatory when Fred and his now famous work first opened my eyes to what I had never really thought about. That is, a connection between the radiation pouring out from the sun and stars and uh, uh, the origin of this radiation in uh, nuclear reactions occurring in the center of the stars. Um, I knew about that, but what I hadn't really thought about was that these nuclear reactions would be what would build up all the chemical elements, starting from the simplest ones. Well, when Fred gave this uh, famous 1948 lecture, I was sitting in the auditorium of Britain's Royal Astronomical Society in Burlington House in London, and I was listening to the papers that were being read at that monthly meeting. And as I say, I'd never, I'd never wondered about the origin of chemi chemical elements such as carbon, uh, nitrogen, oxygen, silicon, and so on. I'd just taken them as a given. Fred Hoyle's paper was entitled The Synthesis of the Elements from Hydrogen. And it was given on November the 8th, 1946, 
with Professor Harry Plaskett, President of the Royal Astronomical Society, in the chair. Fred described how stars radiating heat and light derived from the conversion of hydrogen to helium in their interiors, and, and I should say that we did um, back then, we did know already about the conversion of hydrogen to helium in stars from the work by von Weizsäcker and, uh, and Hans Bethe, who'd worked on the uh, carbon-nitrogen cycle as a series of nuclear reactions uh, which would, which would uh, convert four hydrogens into one helium nucleus. Well, um, what Fred had realized was that uh, stars doing this in their, in the, in their uh, centers they would eventually run out of fuel in their central regions. The hydrogen would all get exhausted. It would have been converted to helium. So, but the stars would be continuing to radiate. Uh, the energy would have to be pouring out through the star. And uh, uh, one had to think of a, of a new source of energy then. Well, this would have to come from gravitational energy for, for, uh, at that time. <clears throat> the centers of the stars would shrink and contract and by the laws of physics their interiors would heat up eventually reaching temperatures of some 5 billion degrees that is about 100, 100 times the, uh, what is thought to be the current temperature at the center of the sun which is some 10 million degrees but these, these uh, when this contraction took place, the stars would heat up to about 5 billion degrees Kelvin in their centers. Well, nuclear reactions then, amongst everything in these hot, dense volumes, would become so frequent that the helium and the rest of all the other lighter elements in the central regions uh, would uh, be converted to the most stable elements around iron, iron of atomic weight 56. And I'll show you now a diagram which, uh, which plots the, the abundances of the elements against their atomic weight. And I'm blotting out the, the uh, screen from anybody side? Can you see round me? Past me? Okay, well, what we have here I thought this was working oh, It doesn't seem to be working now or I'm not handling it right I don't have another point. There we go. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I wasn't handling it right. Uh, there's hydrogen. Uh, this gives you the abundance, the relative abundance of the different elements. And in this graph, uh, you see there's hydrogen, and these are the mass numbers of all the uh, elements. And hydrogen is there up at the top of the diagram and then you come down by a factor 10 and you've got helium and uh, then carbon, oxygen 
and so on. And then there's a steadily uh, uh, descending sequence of elements getting heavier all the time. Here's the mass numbers increasing until you reach down here and then all of a sudden uh, there's a peak which peaks at iron and nickel. And uh, there they are at the top of this peak and then the other side of that, the descent continues and then we come along and the curve flattens out and, and these are elements that are in very low abundance. Well, Fred looked at the properties of the elements in, in this uh, peak here and he realized that, uh, uh, that this must be related to the nature of, of iron itself. Um, iron is the most, uh, in particular iron 56, iron mass number 56, is the most tightly bound nucleus. And all those elements around it in the periodic table of the elements form that peak. In the, and this, this is representing the elements' abundances in the sun. And it's, a, it's a, you can see where it's coming from. It's adapted from a work by Cameron in 1982. And I'm putting out this now for later discussion. After this peak, you notice that there's some heavier elements here, uh, germanium, strontium, xenon, barium, all the way on down to platinum and lead. And then beyond there, you get into the radioactive elements like uranium. But these have, must all have been produced in generations of stars. Now, you see that the, here you see that there are clearly two little peaks here, nothing like this big peak at Ahan, just two little peaks which are labeled R and S, and I'll be coming to later on uh, explain what that means. And it's not clear here, but there are two peaks here. They're a little bit jumbled up, but they're also R and S. And down here we also have R and S, but they haven't been written on the diagram. Well, um, what Fred what Fred Hoyle realized was that it must be the nature of the, of the nucleus of iron, uh, iron and those elements around it, but iron in particular, iron 56 is the most tightly bound nucleus. And uh, so that, uh, that peak there is, is representing the abundances of the elements that are most tightly bound. It was the existence of this peak, combined with his knowledge of the properties of the nuclei of atoms, that led Fred Hoyle to his fundamental work. Well, let me, at this point, give you a little background on the state of theoretical work as it was in 1946. Fred Hoyle's paper on building those iron peak elements in stars was in conflict with a popular view of a primordial element building process supposed to take place at the origin of the universe. And this was a, a theory that was espoused by the, the famous physicists George Gamow, Maria Gerpert Mayer, and Edward Teller. These physicists realized that charged particles, uh, protons, hydrogen nuclei, 
if these were assumed as they as they did uh, assume that they, these had been created primordially in an origin of the universe um, they realized that these could not with their positive charges aggregate to build the heavier elements because the protons all are positively charged and like charge repels like so the positive charges would repel each other and so you wouldn't, couldn't build up through protons but you see all of those nuclei contain neutrons as well that is particles of just about the same mass as the proton but neutral so, um, so Gamow, Maria Gerpet Nemea and Teller uh, they thought that neutrons must be the building blocks of this in this uh, primordial event at the origin of the birth if you like of the universe and they wrote a paper a detailed paper which um, uh, which I haven't um, which I will be, dis be uh, including in the manuscript of this paper uh, for a while then the two theories Fred Hoyle's idea that all the elements were built in stars and those three physicists and other people following their work believed that they had been created at the origin of the universe uh, these two theories existed side by side however George Gamow who was a, a wonderful character he realized that there were some problems with, with, with uh, thinking of these things being formed at the origin of the universe if you look at the, at the, uh, at the de a more detailed curve than, than this you see that there are gaps uh, at masses 5 and 8 there being no stable nuclei of mass 5 that's just heavier than helium and mass 8 uh, in amongst uh, um, uh, boron and, and beryllium so, so uh, what, what Gamow did was draw some very amusing cartoons where he ignored it well he, didn't, he, he ignored the difficulty and he ignored it by showing in his cartoons himself jumping over ditches of, of mass 5 and mass 8 and he said well somehow it, it happens when we jump over those gaps <clears throat> however that was not what uh, what a physicist like Fred Hoyle would, would uh, would realize could be correct and Fred Hoyle's groundbreaking 1946 paper had been followed by his visit in 1953 seven years later uh, to Pasadena and in Pasadena professor uh, William A. Fowler headed work at the Kellogg Radiation Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology and at this uh, laboratory experimental work on all the reactions uh, underlying the, the carbon-nitrogen cycle of von Weizsäcker and, and, uh, and <coughs> that, uh, that uh, I mentioned earlier and <coughs> uh, this experimental work involved those reactions uh, that were building hydrogen into, into helium in stars now this is where Fred made a very important contribution concerned with the abundance of carbon the element carbon 
in the, in the universe. Because life as we know it depends on the presence of carbon in its building blocks. Looking at the nuclear properties of carbon and oxygen, Fred, during this visit in 1953 to Pasadena, he realized that Given the existence of an important element building process which had just recently been discovered, which would build three helium nuclei into one carbon nucleus, and this is a step beyond, you see, the building of, the, of hydrogen into helium. This was taking the helium that was built and, uh, uh, and combining three of them, each of mass four, to build carbon of mass 12. And this uh, process had been, uh, had been uh, discovered by Edwin Saulpeter at Cornell University. And uh, what Fred realized, though, was that uh, carbon uh, built in this way uh, would rapidly interact with another helium, and this was the properties of the, of the nuclei of, of these elements, would rapidly interact with another uh, helium nucleus, and so you've got carbon-12 and you add on another helium-4 and that you get to something 16, charge uh, mass 16, and that's, uh, and that's oxygen. So that uh, carbon made by Thorpeter's process would quickly convert to oxygen. Yet, so uh, for enough carbon to exist in the universe for the occurrence of life as we know it, there must be a speeding up process in building carbon. And a speeding up process means that at an appropriate energy level, uh, the carbon nucleus must have a resonance in its structure. Uh, the, I might mention the reaction that would convert carbon to, to oxygen is simply carbon-12 plus a helium a helium-4 make oxygen-16 plus a gamma-ray uh, energy comes out of that process. So this would go very fast and you wouldn't get enough carbon for what we see in the universe. Well, for, for there to be enough carbon, Fred realized that the nucleus, its nucleus, must have a resonance in its structure. And he suggested that the experimentalists in, in Kellogg Radiation Laboratory should look for such a, resi uh, a resonance. And they'd done experiments over this energy range, but they hadn't detected anything special there. And what Fred was saying was go and look a little bit more carefully. And, uh, you know, here's a theoretician telling the experimentalists what to do. And uh, so his, his suggestion at first didn't go down very well, but... Uh, but uh, uh, after overcoming their reluctance, they, 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 they did look and they found, they found the resonance exactly where, where Fred had predicted it. Well, um, this, this was the start of the work that produced the paper on the synthesis of the elements in stars by myself, Jeffrey Burbage, William Fowler, and Fred Hoyle. And there's no significance to the order of those, those names. It was just our alphabetical order. And different ones of us 
contributed different parts to that, uh, that paper, and nobody but the authors themselves knows, knows what each one of them did. Well, um, this paper was published in 1957 in the Reviews of Modern Physics. And I've put on this, uh, this slide uh, two other references which, uh, which will be in the, in the manuscript when, uh, when this, get, this lecture is, uh, is, is published. Um, one important one is a book written by Bernard Padgett on nucleosynthesis and the chemical evolution of galaxies. It was published in 1997 by the Cambridge University Press. But an even more interesting paper, published in the same journal that published our 1957 paper, um, is called Synthesis of the Elements in Stars, 40 Years of Progress. And this, this uh, This paper, uh, what George Wallerstein at the University of Washington did, uh, he, he collected 14 co-authors who were all specialists in different, uh, um, different um, uh, processes that were described in detail in the, in the uh, Burbage, Burbage, Farrer and Hoyle paper. Um, and uh, you see it's, it's published 40 years on. And uh, I, George Wallerstein collected 14 co-authors, each of whom was a specialist in one of the particular um, uh, element building processes. And our paper was just over 100 pages and their paper was just under a hundred pages. Well, um, our paper uh, was captioned by two quotations from Shakespeare. And the first quotation was from King Lear. It is the stars, the stars above us govern our conditions. And the second caption was from Julius Caesar the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. <laughs> These are still opposite. No one now denies that the chemical elements of which you and I and everything around us are, are made, nobody denies that they were built from hydrogen by nuclear reactions in generations of stars. But we may not yet have the full story. Uh, most people believe that the lightest elements deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen, and uh, most of the helium, and some of the lithium, that light element, um, not very abundant, but uh, that, that those particular things were built not in stars, but uh, actually in the Big Bang, origin of the universe. Uh, Big Bang, incidentally, was Fred Hoyle's de originally derisive name for the presumed origin of the universe, but it's a name that has stuck. There was a competition held a while ago um, by the American Astronomical Society to, uh, to think of a better name for the Big Bang, and there were several suggestions, but nobody could come up with a better name. So, so Fred Hoyle's invention, where he, he meant it to be 
to be derisive, and he gave it in a, a series of lectures that he was giving on, on radio. Um, but, um, but the name has stuck, and it, it is pretty appropriate. Well, today I want to talk briefly about two of the eight nuclear processes which we presented in, in our Burbage, Burbage, Fowler and Hoyle paper, two processes which Fred Hoyle had not considered in his epochal 1946 paper, but which are now providing clues to the earliest history of our galaxy, the Milky Way. These processes involve the elements heavier than, than the iron peak, those elements that I've pointed out to you here, where there's some much lesser peaks, but still peaks. And you notice that they're labeled R and S. And those stood for rapid and slow. And that was the, not very original, but descriptive names that B squared FH gave to, to uh, processes of neutron capture, which would build. Remember that we've got as far as on, and we couldn't go any further and get energy out. So everything that happens after that is going to take energy uh, to some degree. But, uh, but the existence of those peaks there, uh, those occur um, because of some clues that must be uh, present in, in their structure. Well, the clues to the origin of these elements indeed lay in their nuclear structure and then what happens when a metallic element such as iron is bombarded by neutrons produced somewhere within a star. And uh, how the neutrons are produced, we're not, we're not talking about at the moment, but we suppose that we've got as far as iron, and then there's a source of neutrons. Well, um, we, 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 uh, we, had, we had clues to, to what might be happening because Maria Mayer, one of the people who believed in this uh, uh, origin of the elements at the, uh, at the um, initial stages of the universe, Maria Mayer had shown in her work that was recognized by the Nobel Prize in 1963, she had recognized that the particles making up the nuclei of the elements are arranged in shells that determine their properties. Uh, shells that are analogous to the shells of electrons around, uh, around uh, the in, in the elements themselves. Uh, the properties of the various chemical elements are determined by these, uh, uh, these shells of electrons around the, the nuclei of the elements. And for example, uh, at the right-hand side of the periodic table of the elements are those in a gases, argon, neon, and so on, and uh, uh, those don't want to interact with other elements and make compounds, and Maria Mayer uh, said that there must be shells analogous to, to the shells of electrons, there must be uh, shells of, of neutrons and protons actually in the nuclei of the elements. And if you've got filled shells, Fill, and she laid out the, the, what, what would determine the filled shells. Um, uh, if you got filled shells, such nuclei would be unwilling to accept another, another neutron. Um, 
So, so if you had sort of pounded these these uh, these uh, elements, these nuclei, um, by by showers and showers of neutrons, uh, you would build uh, um, build heavy the heavy elements, but then you'd get stuck. We made an analogy for this process. We considered uh, like a, a flowing river and imagine a river that has some deep holes in its bed and imagine the water flowing over and think of the water as being this, this, this flood of, of, uh, of neutrons. Wherever there's a, a, a hole, um, the water would pile in and the hole would fill up and then the water would flow on over. So, so what, what, we, what the, the analogy was that these, these holes corresponded to places where nuclei had very small cross-sections for capturing another nucleus, uh, another neutron. In other words, they'd been pounded and they'd swallowed all the neutrons they could and uh, uh, couldn't, couldn't swallow another one. So um, you would build up peaks, and those were indeed the peaks that uh, are labeled R in this, in this diagram. Peak here, peak here, and uh, peak here, which is not labeled R, but it is an R peak. Well, um, what would happen to those elements uh, the, if, if a star that was undergoing this kind of process in its interior, uh, it would be very unstable, and in fact it would be collapsing. It would have used up all its uh, um, properly available uh, energy sources and it would be just collapsing. And this would be prior to an explosion where uh, the star would uh, completely disintegrate, collapse inwards, completely disintegrate, and would be seen as a supernova explosion, which of course were, were known to have occurred in the past in our own Milky Way, and we see them uh, occurring in... Uh, uh, in um, uh, other other galaxies. Well, um, after after uh, after you'd piled on and built built much overabundant elements, Uh, at least elements that were much overabundant in the in the number of neutrons in their in their uh, in their structure, when the when the star disrupted itself and the elements were spread out, uh, the they could decay then and, and lose all the excess neutrons, and if they decayed, they would change their mass and mass to to, uh, to uh, a neutron number, and they would in fact. Uh, produce these peaks that you see here at xenon and at germanium and at platinum. And we, we labeled those, we called this the rapid neutron capture process because it depended on these neutron supply coming in so fast that, uh, uh, that uh, 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 you were pounding the, the, the elements too fast for them to, to uh, uh, to uh, absorb these these properly, so they would be unstable elements, and uh, then 
uh, what would happen with these unstable elements when the star disrupted, these would be spread out into these gas between the stars and then they could decay to their, to their uh, uh, natural uh, structure. They could, uh, and those would produce those little peaks labeled R in that diagram. Well, what, um, what we realized, what, at least what all of the Burbage, Burbage, Fowler and Hoyle group realized was that there must be another process to produce those peaks labeled S. S here at Strontium, S here at Barium, and uh, it's not marked S, but it, it is S at, at Lead. And um, those peaks are labeled S because we call this the slow neutron capture process. It wasn't very original, you know, R for rapid and S for, for, for slow, but those names have stuck uh, through all these 40 years. Well, um, what, we, what we thought was that we'd better uh, see if we could do some, uh, uh, some actual astronomical observation that would check out this. For this, uh, this process of, of uh, slow neutron capture, uh, what we wanted were stars that were at a fairly late evolutionary stage but not ready yet to explode and disintegrate. And that is some of the red giant stars. And a clue that this must occur had already been presented by the observers to the theoreticians. An unstable element called technetium had been detected by the astronomer Merrill in the atmosphere of an evolved red giant star. Um, technetium is unstable. It has a half-life of about 10 to the 5th years so uh, that it could be seen in the atmosphere of a star that must be older than 10 to the 5th years would be an indication that something had been going on in the interior of the star and uh, had made its way up to the surface of the star. Well, um, in view of this process, and in, what, what uh, Jeffrey and I thought we'd better do would be to find a star that had overabundances of uh, elements like barium in the S-peak here and uh, strontium and so on in that S-peak there. And we'd better do a detailed analysis of the uh, atmosphere of this star and determine the element abundances. And what we should have on this, this flowing river picture uh, with the, uh, the analogy where you've got holes in a riverbed where you've got uh, neutron capture cross sections that were, that were small, the abundance would build up. So the product of the neutron capture cross section and the, uh, and the uh, uh, overabundance uh, should be a constant. And we thought we'd better try and check that. So we found a star, and it was a red giant star. And that's its catalog number. It was known as a barium star, and uh, we set out to determine its, its, its abundances. Now, that was not as easy as, uh, 
as just saying that and set out to determine the abundances. You've got to get observations of the star with good resolution, and that meant a big telescope. And there was a problem here. We were in Pasadena, and uh, the, the big telescope that would obviously uh, be the best to use on this would be the, the Mount Wilson 100-inch telescope. However, women at that time were not allowed on Mount Wilson. It was, people hardly believe this now. There was a time when women were not allowed to use the Mount Wilson telescopes. The, the, uh, the, uh, um, there I was in Pasadena, but only Geoffrey could go up and use the, the telescopes, and he was a Carnegie Fellow. And so he was supposed to apply for observing time and go up and, and use the telescopes. Well, a little bit of, uh, of uh, shuffling around of people, particularly our good friend Alan Sandage and, of course, Willie Fowler, working on the, on the Mount Wilson people, got permission for me to at least go up the mountain. And then once I was up there, of course, it was... The, it was the, an easy matter to, to actually use the telescopes. So, so that's, that was how we worked that around. And people don't believe now that there was ever a time when women were, were forbidden to, to uh, undertake that kind of experimental work. Well, um, that's the star that we picked to study. And it was known as a barium two star, actually, a barium star. And uh, we published, we, we did our analysis, we published a paper in 1957, and we found overabundances of the elements strontium, yttrium, zirconium, barium, and so on, all those elements that you saw in those um, S peaks, the slow neutron capture peaks. So, so, uh, so here was the, the uh, uh, place where the... the the, those kind of stars would be where the, uh, uh, the slow neutron capture process could take place. Now, it's known nowadays that stars of this sort, uh, this was not known in our day when we worked on that star, but uh, it's known now that stars occur in binary stars, that is they occur with a pair of two stars uh, and one of them is a, is a, is a barium two star and uh, what has happened is that material processed in one star is, is transferred from one star to its companion but all that work uh, was, was ahead of, of 1957 when we did this work um, what about the, the R process? Well, here, what we want to look at is some star where we might expect it to have been formed out of material that had been processed in previous uh, supernova explosions. And uh, and we want to, we would want to look at, or, or one would want to look at the abundances in a very metal poor star. That is a very old star. And the star 
Again, I just give the catalogue number, that's all the name it has. And the work here was by Christine at the University of Texas. Um, and what he found, and I'll show you in a minute uh, his, his results, what he found was that, uh, that uh, the abundances of the R process elements were up in that star and the S process elements were not, were not there in fact. And I'll show you some data here which is actually uh, Uh, showing uh, here are two stars, one which shows our process elements and one which doesn't. And here is a, st a stretch of the spectrum where you see the signatures of titanium, chromium, iron, and titanium again and iron, and you see that one star given by those uh, round bubbles in the diagram and the other star given by the line, they agree very well. So in other words, uh, the iron abundance and the elements around iron uh, are essentially the same in, in, in those two stars. But now look in another part of the spectrum where you see some of the R or S process elements and uh, look, at, look at the comparison here. They, they agree pretty well for a while, but then you've got a violent disagreement here. Uh, one star doesn't have europium, but the other star has a very strong line of europium. And the same here, uh, uh, a line here that appears in one star and not in the other. And uh, europium is par excellence a, an R process element. It's only produced in the R process. So this star has gone through the R process and the other star hasn't. Or at least it's been made of material that has gone through the R process and the other star hasn't. Well, uh, uh, this work was followed up by a group of people using Kit Peak spectra who studied a number of abundances in a number of stars And uh, uh, here are strontium, yttrium, and zirconium. And uh, what, is, what these uh, data are plotted against, these points, is the abundance of iron. Now, uh, if iron is produced in generations of stars, the youngest stars will have about the same iron abundance as the sun does. And these are abundances relative to what there is in the sun. They're logarithmically scaled here. And so this, this bunch of stars are pretty well the same as, the, as, the, as what you have in the sun. And you, you see these, these stars in the same uh, uh, end of the diagram for all these different elements. So where you begin to get radical differences is when you are down to only one-tenth of the iron abundance. And this must mean the old stars, because the old stars 
uh, are, the, are the stars, if you divide up the stars in our, our Milky Way, in our galaxy, you have the, the, uh, the young stars, uh, and you have the gradually older and older stars, and the, what, you, what you can measure this, uh, this relative age of the stars by is there are an abundance so that we're getting to older and older stars and these stars occur in different parts of our Milky Way uh, the young stars similar to the solar abundance occur in the spiral arms of, uh, of our Milky Way and then as you go through the, uh, the, the thin disk the thick disk and the, the bulge and the halo, the eventually the halo part of our own Milky Way, you get to older and older stars, more and more metal-poor stars. And so the, these are all the metal-poor stars. But now, it's a rather much of a scatter diagram, but it's really pretty, pretty indicative. Uh, here we have strontium, yttrium, and zirconium, which are S-process elements. And after you get to the end of the, of the uh, uh, younger stars, you see that there's an enormous scatter, uh, but there's the, you can't really pick out any, anything in detail about that scatter. You just have to call it a scatter. But uh, when you look at the, at the elements that are S-process elements, barium, lanthanum, cerium, you find that uh, it's still an awful scatter, but there's a tendency that all those elements are in low abundance. Here we've got the logarithmic abundance mark. So these are all in low abundance. And then when you go to the R process, you see something quite different. Here are these elements, and they're not only the, the same as, the, as, the, uh, as, the, as the, the solar kind of abundances, they're overabundant. Uh, we're up a factor 10 here. In these, uh, these elements, in particular, europium, which is a characteristic R process element. So, um, well, you can ask now, as a result of this kind of work, you can ask how early in the history of our galaxy did such events occur? And here we can, we can again look at this, this structure of the, of the galaxy and say, what, why are the, those stars that we're seeing there in the, in, the, in the halo, why are they the oldest? Well, their composition show they're really metal poor. So they've not been built out of stars with compositions enriched by many generations of stars. And uh, um, this, uh, this process must have, must have occurred apart from the, the building of the, of the iron kind of uh, elements, metals in the iron peak. Well, um, the con conclusion from uh, the work that, is, that I've shown you here is that uh, the conditions in the very early uh, history of our Milky Way, the conditions were that early supernovae that were producing the R process elements are always quite similar because we haven't got such a, such a um, striking
got such a striking spread here. They're overabundant, but they're not spread so violently as, as, for example, these are. So that tells you that in that early history of our Milky Way, the stars that exploded and produced the R process elements were, must have been all, always fairly similar. Perhaps there's only a narrow mass range of stars that do explode as supernovae in the early history of our Milky Way and that, that yield the, the bulk production of the R process elements in the galaxy. Well, this is just a partial account of the way in which the chemical elements have been built in successive generations of stars. And I've concentrated on two processes in which the Burbage-Burbage part of the B squared FH contributed most. Fred Hoyle originated the concepts of stellar evolution that would lead to the equilibrium process for producing the iron peak elements, and Willie Fowler was the leader for the laboratory work and the detailed nuclear physics involved in hydrogen burning, helium burning, and the start of the build-up through alpha particles, helium nuclei, that's been so expanded in recent years by the availability of ever more powerful computers. You have to remember when we did the 1957 work, <laughs> computers were, were very different from what they are now. Well, um, the computers that we have now can tackle stellar evolution through the giant stars and onto the late stages of transition of stars to the horizontal branch, old blue stars and various other late stages of stellar evolution. But while we can do all that now, we should never forget that one of Fred Hoyle's steps of genius was his realization that the buildup of carbon in the, in the universe, so essential to life as we know it, must involve the existence of that energy level that he predicted in carbon at the place where it would facilitate the production of carbon from three helium nuclei rather than in letting the carbon all flow on into, into oxygen. And if, if you're interested in cosmology, this has led to an interesting cosmological approach called the anthropic principle, that the nature of our universe and its laws of physics favors the existence of life as we know it. And there may be other universes with different laws that we know nothing about. The, the fact that life exists tells you that, the, that the, uh, the nuclear processes did behave as, uh, as demonstrated by, essentially by, by Fred Hoyle and by Willie Fowler. Uh, thank you. That concludes my, my talk, and, uh, and uh, 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 I'll be glad to answer any questions that you have. question and uh, uh, 
I'm giving another talk tomorrow, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that then. But yes, yes, uh, the, the idea is that we, we count for everything except, uh, as a matter of fact, in the, in the Burbage, Burbage, Farrer and Hoyle paper, we labeled those elements that he's referring to, uh, deuterium and, uh, and actually quite a lot of helium and, uh, and lithium, uh, were built actually in the, in the Big Bang. In, in other words, in the, the Big Bang that had been thought of by, by, by Mayer, uh, Gamow and, and Teller as being the origin of all the elements, at least, at least the majority of people believe that uh, that um, is the, still the place where those particular elements are, are, are built. Now, I'll talk about some other possibilities in a, in a, in a talk that I'm giving uh, tomorrow. But uh, it's a very good question that you raised that. You'll have to come back tomorrow. <laughs> in the first uh, plot that you showed of the relative abundance of elements, um, where did that data come from? Was that simply the spectra of stars or... Oh, from the atmospheres of stars, because that, that's all you see. Oh, oh you mean the, the, the actual abundance curve? Yeah. A lot of that is from study of the meteorites for the, for the heavier elements, uh, assuming that, that the, the Earth has an origin along with the, with the sun. Um, you can, a lot of those elements can be seen in the sun spectrum, because the sun being so bright you can get enormous resolution. But there are those, uh, those uh, particularly the isotopes and so on, come from the meteoritic work and the, 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 uh, the chemists and, and the people who analyze the meteoritic material. Well, let's thank uh, Dr. Gerber for